Doug, give your question again, because I want to make sure I've got it right. I thought I had it right, but I thought it was an easy question, but apparently people didn't know what you're talking about. In, in your sermon, you talked about dogma being the boundary of the garden. The boundary of the garden, right. And you're not touchstone article, you talked about the same thing, but you contrasted dogma with doctrine. I'm not sure I understand the difference. Everybody got that? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Okay. Well, but what he's saying, if you understood the question, you're right with him. Uh, he said he doesn't understand it either. Okay. So you're right with it, Jerry. Oh, good. Okay. Doctrine, doctrine is the, simply the translation of, of the Greek word didache. It's a Latin doctrina, didache. It's simply Christian teaching. We, we, we deal with the matter and the experience of the, the divine revelation given us in Christ our Lord in the manifestation of the Holy Spirit and expressed in God's own word, the sacred scriptures. Anytime we think about that, we talk about that, we arrange that, where we take, we take the bread and we break it down and give it to people to eat, that's doctrina. That's didache. Well, that's, and that's what we should be doing all the time. We should be we should constantly in our homes. We teach our children what, the meaning of the gospel, the meaning of salvation, and so forth. See, that's doctrine. That's teaching. Dogma is when somebody in the course pardon me, dogma happens. Dogma happens in the course, when in the course of somebody actually doing that, he is perceived to step over a line. And he's not, he's not, he's not really doing Christian doctrine anymore. He's starting to slip into heresy, false teaching, or in my case, ideas offensive to pious ears. That, by the way, is, a, is an actual category in theology. Peace, auribus offensiva, things offensive to pious ears. And I see, and I, there, there's two pious ears over here <laughs> situated on this head. See, if I say something offensive to pious ears, see, I might not, I might not have slipped into a heresy, but I'm, but I'm, you know, Paul did that from time to time, didn't he? When Paul talked about the freedom, the freedom from the, from from the from the, the Torah, that was that was offensive. To pious ears, you know? words, but subjectivity doesn't get to doesn't get to decide what's right and, and, and what's erroneous. So when somebody steps over a line, is perceived by the church to step over a line, okay. then the bishops of the church assemble and they consider this teaching and they pose a dogma. This, is, this man has crossed a line, and we're going to tell you right now where that line is. Thus, for instance, in, uh, oh, about the year 345, okay, a renowned monk was preaching and saying, that Jesus really, really, he's not human. 
he doesn't really have a, a human soul, but the but the the second person of the Trinity, the, the Word of God, has joined himself to a body, but this person of God takes the place of internal human experience. Okay, and that sounded very very funny, and very strange, and very suspect to the fathers of Antioch. So the fathers of Antioch, well, uh, one of them, one of the, Antio- the Antiochian fathers was, in fact, the Patriarch of Constantinople, Flavian. They wrote to the Pope, and the Pope says, we can't have that. Where was the Pope coming from? The Pope was a man by the name of Leo, who was an ardent student of Augustine. And in the earlier, earlier decades... Of the, uh, of the 5th century, Augustine had formulated an idea on his own because Augustine saw the problem. Augustine was, was teaching and, and, and wrote extensively that there are, in fact, two modes of being in Christ that are not mixed together to form a tertium quid, not to form something else. Okay? So he started speaking about due nature two natures in Christ. And that became standard teaching in the West. So when this problem broke out in Alexandria and in Greece, when they, when they referred to the Pope, the, the Pope was well prepared. He, he had studied as Augustine very extensively. So he wrote back a book called The Tome. And The Tome became the, the standard when the fathers met at Chalcedon, across the Bosporus from... from uh, from uh, Constantinople, when the fathers met there, they adopted the tome. Now, there were all kinds of problems with the adoption because the tome was written in Latin. The question is, how do you translate natura into Greek? They they took the word thesis and translated natura as thesis. So now they're saying there are two thesis in Christ. Well, that's that's when the... the, uh, the Copts, the Egyptians, the Copts, said they can't be because St. Cyril of Alexandria spoke of one thesis in Christ. In other words, they had changed the meaning of the word thesis. And we've had that, we've had that schism to this day. That's just it. What does thesis mean? I went, when, uh, you see the word physical in there, though, don't you? Okay. It appears to me that when St. Cyril of Alexandria used the word thesis, he was talking about a concrete thing. There's just one being called Jesus. That he's not, he's not two different persons. There's just one concrete thing. But when Chalcedon used the word thesis, they took it to mean two modes of being. With me? So they're saying Jesus, Jesus Christ has two modes of being, divine and human. But they're not saying two persons, which is exactly what uh, Cyril of Alexandria had worked on. I <coughs> see, that is a dogma. You may not say, they just told you what you may not say. They drew a line. You may not say it. Okay. Within that line, you're pretty much free to say what you want. The Christian faith does not have to be expressed always exactly the same way because even the Gospels express it differently. Recently, I, I preached on how the difference between Matthew and Paul were the same words. See, in, in Paul, 
being called and being chosen are exactly the same thing in Paul. Okay. Those whom he has called, he has chosen. Those whom he has chosen, he has called. Okay. We go to Matthew. Many are called and few are chosen. <laughs> you see what I mean? Even, even the New Testament, there are different ways of expressing the truth. <coughs> it is not the, it's not the intent of a dogma to close down theology. It's simply supposed to put a ring around it. And sometimes that ring will be fierce. One of the words is anathema ginito. Let him be anathema. If anybody should say, you know, there are four persons in the Trinity. You know. So if you find me here this morning or any time saying, you know, there are three persons of the Holy Trinity, um, Jesus and, and, uh, and the Virgin Mary and the angel Gabriel. <laughs> what you should do is come see me and say, you know, Father Pat, we think you misspoke. We know you're getting old and this can happen. <laughs> but we think you misspoke. And I said, no, that's exactly what I meant. Then you pick up the phone, you call the bishop. <laughs> okay. I mean, last Sunday, I discovered this week, that last Sunday I was talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan, and I had the Jew helping the Samaritan instead said Samaritan helping the Jew. <laughs> when I realized that during the week that I'd done that, I was, oh, good Lord, that's terrible. <laughs> It's dreadful. Uh, Gary. Anyway, oh, hang on, Gary. That is a dogma. We do not impose dogmas in the church except under stern necessity. The, 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 creed, the, the, creed, the creed, the Nicene Creed, is the only one that's dogmatic. It's the only one that's dogmatic. However, with the Council of Chalcedon, they put out a statement of faith based on Leo's tome. And we, uh, we respect that, we, and we honor that, and we have to abide by it. Is there a list of all the dogma in the church? Is it, or is it I, would say, I would say that if you look at the, at the doctrinal decision, dogmatic decisions rather, made by the Seven Ecumenical Councils, you pretty much got it. Okay. You, pretty, you pretty much got it. I know that there are orthodox who tend to dogmatize on every point. You know, if you got the wrong icon on the iconostas, you know, a letter will go to the bishop. Um, not, not in this parish. Okay, yes, sir. I was just wondering, uh, I can't remember if I read it here or in the scripture where it says that the first Adam was a, um, breathed and he was a, a living, living soul and the second Adam A life-giving life living spirit, spirit. yes. So, with Christ's two natures, he's still... What, what, you're, Gary, you're getting on to another subject. Oh, okay. Because the, 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 we, we could follow that rabbit hole forever. Okay, okay. But I'll never get back to the book of Revelation. Okay, that's fine. Okay. But this was a question actually based on the, based on the sermon. But we try to keep dogmas to a minimum. Because otherwise, if, if you're constantly stretching, stretching dogma, that does not encourage, that does not encourage fruitful thought. Teaching, teaching should be somewhat varied within the general understanding of the faith. But if we're going to, if we're going to uh, insist on every last little bit of ordinary practice as having a dogmatic quality, it tends to make things very narrow. It tends to restrict our sympathies. Joseph? 
Yeah. I mean, would that be kind of an operational definition of fundamentalism? Yes. For everything? Yes, it does. Yeah, it does. Yes. Uh, I saw a couple of years ago, it's not, not recently, I saw a couple of years ago, a reference to myself on somebody's blog site saying, obviously, Father Reardon is not an Orthodox <coughs> because he does not like the Iconostas and he, he, uh, he holds a penal substitutionary theory of atonement. <laughs> well, fortunately, when I got the, the blog guy got to me, it says this blog, no more comments will be allowed. So I wasn't allowed to defend myself. I think penal substitutionary atonement is one of the worst ideas ever to come down the pike. It's a terrible idea. How could they ascribe that to me? I don't know. And may I say that you've made it clear to the congregation, as far as I'm concerned, I, 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 I got that from you. What are you talking about? That's right. You don't know about it. <laughs> Keep it that way. Keep it that way. Penal substitutionary atonement okay, says that God was so mad at the world that he sent his only begotten son to take out his anger on him. God should have never been angry. He should have been happy. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, where was that? Oh, yes. With regard to the Iconostas, I can't be an Orthodox because I don't like the Iconostas. I don't like the Iconostas. But that's a matter of taste. St. John Chrysostom never saw an Iconostas. If he walked in, into an contemporary church today, he would wonder, what is that thing up there? The Conestas came in as a response to the heresy that was condemned to the Seventh Ecumenical Council. I mean, I like icons, but I don't like the idea of blocking out, blocking out the sanctuary. And as soon as you block out the sanctuary, because it's no longer visible, then you then you create a theology, a theology based on the Conestas. See what I'm saying? And there, there's plenty of that. There, there are whole theologies based on the Conestas. The Conestas is not part of Revelation. <laughs> Theology is supposed to be based on revelation. Uh, so we make up, every once in a while, I'll notice that some of you make the sign of the cross in very weird ways. I never correct you. I never correct you. Okay. I'm glad to see you making the sign of the cross. <laughs> I'm delighted to see you making the sign of the cross. Okay. So if you give it a bit of this and a bit of that, I don't really... <laughs> I don't say anything. The accepted way of making the sign of the cross is to have the two natures of Christ down here and the three persons of the Trinity up here. That is to say, the Council of Ephesus, the Council of Chalcedon, and the Council of, uh, Council of, of Nicaea up here, and do it this way. That's what, but uh, not everybody does it that way. I, in this parish, not everybody does it that way. I don't really care. It's not, it's not a big deal to me. I, I, I want to major in the majors and minor in the minors. Yes, ma'am? Are you supposed to do it always with the right hand? <laughs> See? It's a dogma. <laughs> See what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? This, is, this is exactly what I'm talking about. You have to do it the left hand or right hand. <laughs> it doesn't make any difference. <laughs> I remember, Joseph, you, you're, you're probably not old enough to remember this. There was a there was a cardinal archbishop in Chicago by the name of Stritch. Stritch. He was made a cardinal back right after World War II when finally peace was in the world and a bunch of American bishops went over and made, made cardinals and Stritch of Chicago and Spelman of New York were among them. Okay. Stritch got an infection. 
Yeah. Stritch, Stritch got an infection in his right arm, and the right arm had to be amputated. Okay. I read in the newspaper the Pope gave him permission to give the blessing with his left hand. I can't tell you what that does to me. You need a permission to use your left hand when you don't have a right one? (laughs) (laughs) And of course, the Pope, the Pope, out of the goodness of his heart, (laughs) gave him permission to give the blessing with his left hand. Uh, Are we ever going to get to... uh, Herbert, this better be on rim. It better be on point. I'm trying to stay on track. Just listen to what I got to say. Um, so we can say revelations and revelations that there is some, some things that might be dogmatic, would you say? Dogmas are created by the church. Dogmas are created by the church to put a safeguard around the gospel. Dogmas are not the sum total of what must be believed. What was in the scriptures is what must be believed. Um, and that's as far as I would go on it. Uh, dogmas don't sum up the Christian church. Dogmas certainly don't sum up the Orthodox church. And if we concentrate too much on the dogmas, we really lose the gospel. I mean, I'm, I'm convinced of that. I've, I've read volumes and volumes and volumes of Orthodox theology in which you would never suspect this has anything to do with in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's all highly philosophical and, and uh, whatever. I think I'd like to get the book of Revelation. <laughs> okay. See, Doug? See what you did? That was a quick question. <laughs> yeah, it was. It wasn't. The, the answer wasn't the answer. Everybody got, everybody got the text? John, I, John, your brother, companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see right in the book, and sent it to the seven churches that are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Theatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. Edith Humphreys has written an entire book just on that verse. I turned to see the voice that spoke to me. What do you mean? Turn to see the voice. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed in a garment down to his feet, and girded about the chest with the golden band. His head and hair were were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, 
and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have seen, and I have the keys of Hades and death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Isn't that a lot better than the discussion we just had? John's vision, notice, comes on the Lord's day. See that in verse 10? I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Himira and Himira Kiriaki, the Lord's day. Now that's the very day when the seven churches of Asia Minor were celebrating the Lord's Supper, the breaking of the bread. The expression, the Lord's day, is much earlier in the book of Revelation. It goes back to the, undocumented, uh, it goes back to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 16, 2 says, take up the collection on the Lord's Day. So this service of worship normally began on the night when the Sabbath came to a close and Sunday began. It lasted through the night and ended on Sunday morning. You get that in Acts 20. At the end of the Sabbath, the Christians come together for prayer. You know, sundown on Saturday night. They come together for prayer. They continue prayer through the night. And then they, at the early, when the, sun, when the sun rises in the morning, they have the Holy Communion and they're dispersed. Um, that was the normal pattern of, of, of worship in the early church, where every Saturday night was spent in prayer. You had a vigil all night long and received communion on Sunday morning, and then you went on. Uh, and it wasn't a rest day. You went to work. You know, there, were no, no, there was no Sunday closing laws. Okay. You went to work. Um, now, once the Christians sort of took over, they said, well, you know, we can do some adjusting here. <laughs> okay. We're going to be praying all that time. Let's take Sunday off rather than Saturday. And, and, and they were able to do it. John describes himself as being in the Spirit. In the Spirit. It's a technical term referring to prophetic inspiration. You find the prophets in the Old Testament, particularly Ezekiel, are described as being in the Spirit. I cited for you in your paper you have, Matthew twenty-two forty-three, where Jesus is, is citing the uh, uh, Psalm 100 and 110 and Hebrew 109 in, uh, in, 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 uh, in our text. How does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord. 
Notice there, David is described as being in the spirit. You've got the spirit of prophecy. What happens to what happens to John in verse 17? I saw him, I fell at his feet as one dead. Consequently, the expression slain in the spirit. Slain in the spirit. Okay. Which is still a fairly common phenomenon among some Christians. When the spirit comes down upon them, they're slain in the spirit. Uh, I have not seen that in the Orthodox Church, but I don't, I don't, I'm not worried about that. I don't, I don't, that's one of those things that, that can happen. Uh, and certainly it does happen to the prophet. You see that in Ezekiel. Holy Spirit comes down to Ezekiel, out he goes. He's slain in the spirit. Um, that's why Ezekiel was not allowed to operate heavy machinery. And that is a fact. Such was John's response to this inaugural vision. This vision of John is comparable to the inaugural visions of other prophets. You think of think of Isaiah six, the inaugural vision. I was I was in the temple. Remember that? And he, he sees he sees the Lord high and lifted up. He, he, he hears the the seraphim chanting back and forth. Or the inaugural vision of Ezekiel, the first chapter of Ezekiel. This is his vision of, of Christ in glory. Standing in the midst of the menorah, verse 12. There's the menorah in verse 12. The seven golden lampstands. Uh, he's clothed as the high priest. In uh, verse 13, verse 13. One like a son of man, clothed in a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with the golden band. I have a description of how the high priest looked at the bottom of your page. Ben Sirach describes uh, Simon the high priest. It must must have been really something to see Simon the high priest as he presided over all these crowds of people who came to Jerusalem for for the feast days. Simon the high priest is there. Look at this description of Simon the high priest. He prevailed to enlarge the city and obtain glory in his conversation with the people and enlarge the entrance of the house and the court. He expanded the temple, in other words. He shone in his days like the morning star. Man, that is really good, and your priest looks like that. You poor people. He shone in his days like the morning star in the midst of a cloud. And the moon at the full. And as the sun, when it shines, so did he shine in the temple of God. And as the rainbow giving light to the bright clouds. I mean, this guy really had a positive attitude toward his pastor. Okay. (laughs) And as the rainbow giving light in the bright clouds. As a flower of roses... In the days of spring, and as the lilies on the brink of the water, and as the sweet-smelling incense in the time of summer, as a bright fire and frankincense burning in the fire, as a massive vessel of gold adorned with every precious stone, as an olive tree budding forth and a cypress tree rearing itself on high, when he put on the robe of glory and was clothed with perfection of power, and he went up to the holy altar. He honored the vesture of holiness. Now, why are we reading this? 
So that's exactly what John is seeing in this in the temple of heaven, is Christ as priest. He describes Jesus as priest in heaven. I, I kept trying, trying to tie this book, the book of Hebrews, where Jesus is the high priest. There's a liturgy going on up there. Okay, and if if Ben Sirach could be this impressed with, with the temple of Jerusalem, think how we're going to get how we're going to be impressed when we get up there and see all that. Um, notice this the right hand of Christ it's a right hand of power and a right hand of gentleness he lays his right hand gently on John and it's still the right hand which holds the seven stars he has the Pleiades right there in his hand okay And yet when John falls down like that, he laid his right hand on me, saying to me. Now, I have always been bewildered by what he said to him. Hear this. Here's what he says to him. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. (laughs) If I hadn't been afraid at four, that would absolutely terrify me. (laughs) Okay. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. John didn't really say that he felt better after this. (laughs) In this vision, Christ is frightening. He has white hair, for one thing. White hair. Where does that white hair come from? Well, think of this vision of Daniel in chapter 7. I watched till the thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. Instead, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. With respect to this sword coming forth from his mouth, we had that this morning, didn't we? In Ephesians 6, and in the, um, and take this, the helmet of the Spirit, pardon me, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And in Hebrews, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall after the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is a living, is living and powerful, and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit, of the joints and marrow. A discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, that, that sword's coming forth from his mouth. I mean, I don't know about you guys, I'm not reassured by any of this. Okay. His feet are described as refined brass. Where does that come from? Well, I think it comes from the, from the description of the four living creatures back in the book of Ezekiel. Their legs were straight and the soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' feet. They sparkle like the color of burnished bronze. Twice in this text, 
he is called the first and the last. Verse 11, verse 17. He is the protos kai eschatos, the first and the last. An expression will appear later on in chapter 2, and then at the end of the book in chapter 22. That is drawn, by the way, from the book of Isaiah. Um, one example only, there's plenty of examples in Isaiah. But in the second chapter, the second section of Isaiah, the Deuteronomy section of, uh, of Isaiah, chapter 44, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no other God. This, this expression, first and last, corresponds to Alpha and Omega. And I talked about that before, didn't I? Right, is the first and last. Uh, the first and last letters of the alphabet, because Christ is the beginning and the end of what God has to say to us. Okay. Which is why, why we feel rather suspicious about the Latter-day Saints. Because they've got a corpus of scripture, which is, makes Jesus no longer to be the last word. I think I can give it that interpretation. Somebody I'll tell you about when I, when I bumped into this big kiosk of, of, of the Latter-day Saints from Utah when I was walking through Rome. And I immediately went up and started arguing with them in Italian. I guess they were detecting my English accent. They certainly had one. They had a Utah accent. Okay. Um, but see, that the Mormons believe that he's not the, he's not the last that there's another word, another revelation after him. In short, Christ is the word. He's described here in verse 18, that he died and rose again and lives forever. I am he who lives and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. That's a common, a common kind of expression in the... Uh, in the New Testament, let me just cite you Romans, for example. Romans, Romans 6, you must know that, that text, Romans 6. If we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. I was dead, but now I'm alive forevermore. Christ being raised from the dead now dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Hence he holds the keys of life and death in the underworld. Okay. Now he tells John, you're going to be seeing and hearing a bunch of things. Write it all down and send it to these seven churches. Okay. Now these seven churches represent not just the churches of Asia... They represent all the churches, the number seven being the number of perfection. Uh, before I go down and catch my plane, do any of you have uh, a question about this material? Yes, Phil. The first mention of um, the Son of Man uh, here. That's the only place where Son of Man is used in the New Testament outside of the Gospel. Yes, but I want, which I think is curious. In any case, is there a definite article there? No. No, there's no hole. No. The word is horse. 
like a son of man. Like a son of man. I don't, Phil, I don't think that's significant to a point I think you're trying to make, which is the Danielic, the Danielic reference. I think that's what you have in mind to make, isn't it? Um, possibly, but it was, it was more just that when it says one like the son of man, it just means he looked like an individual human being. I, it, I believe it means that. I believe that's exactly what it means. But there's no way that the, the expression ben Adam would ever have been under, understood at this time without some reference to, uh, to Daniel. It's just, it just wouldn't. He, all, he also, to Anthropo, will be, that's going to be a reference to Daniel, for sure. Uh, I, I, I think it means a human being, yes, it does mean that. But I think it means something more. No, yes, I'm Joseph. Hardly think of it as a Christian. And, and you know, Phil, when I was teaching, when I was teaching mythology back in, uh, in, in Pittsburgh, uh, I took a lot of the themes in the book of Revelation, and I related them to themes going on in Greek and, and, uh, and uh, Latin mythology. Okay. It was a way of actually sneaking a little bit of New Testament into a secular university course. Well, I'm teaching them about these, 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 these themes, and then I'll grab something from the Bible and shove it in there. Um, <laughs> And they can't, they can't knock me for it, you know. The, um, but I was, it was my way of getting the Bible into a course where kids were not likely to be thinking in terms of, terms of Bible. You know. uh, Joseph, uh, oh, did you have your hand yeah, up? It was just a general observation that, you know, uh, Revelation is really a work of poetry in terms of form. And the language is going to be used differently uh, throughout. It's rather than having a minimal legalistic or philosophical the words, the terminology has been trying to embrace so much. That's a very good point. That's a very good point. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's a very good point. Yes, sir? I just wanted to make a comment that when you were describing the image of Christ from Sirach, <coughs> it reminded me of the witness description of uh, St. John Maximovich of uh, San Francisco being in the liturgy. Some people who were with him behind the iconostasis, as you say, almost felt like he was on fire. Almost this is just oh, I, I, that does not surprise me at all. was pulling off after the search. Wow. <laughs> so, those things... That's fantastic. Nowadays too. I appreciate that. Any reference to John Maximovich is, for me, is a, uh, is a blessing. You all be, uh, be real good, be safe, and don't need a priest for the next 72 hours. Okay. Glory to the Father, through the Son, in the Holy Spirit, now and ever, the God who is, who was, and is to come at the end of time. Amen.